I mentioned off the top of the show, I was off last week. I was in France with my mom. It's her 75th birthday. So we there was a seat sale, did it at the last minute, flew to Paris. <clears throat> it was warm. It was great. It was also the, right in the middle of an election, the second round of the presidential election. So I watched the debate between Emmanuel Macron, the incumbent, and Marine Le Pen, his opponent once again, just like she had been in 2017. Well, yesterday, France voted to stay the course. Emmanuel Macron uh, was elected to a second five-year term. He's the first president to win re-election in two decades. Uh, foreign prime, prime, or prime Minister Justin Trudeau has congratulated him already. Uh, he beat his rival Marine Le Pen of the far-right uh, National Rally Party quite significantly, 58% of the popular vote for Macron, but it was still closer than last time. And that's raised a lot of questions. Uh, Le Pen had 13 million votes, a historic high for her anti-immigration party. Addressing a rally at the foot of the Eiffel Tower last night, uh, Macron vowed to respond efficiently to the anger and disagreement of voters who chose the far right. With more on what the significance of the final result was and now what challenges lie ahead for Emmanuel Macron in his second term is Garrett Martin. He's a senior professorial lecturer at the School of International Service of American University and co-director of the Transatlantic Policy Center. Professor Martin, thank you so much for your time tonight. My pleasure. So uh, I guess there, there was certainly a lot of hand-wringing going on about a potential far-right win in France. It didn't materialize. Um, but it wasn't as convincing a victory as last time around. No, I think it, you're absolutely right that at, at, at the time, the polls were really tightening, and there was even certain polls that suggested it might be as tight as a 51-49, 52-48 win. So the, the two weeks in between the two rounds did lead to a, a greater increase in the gap between the two, but it's still palpable. I mean, the symbolic bar of, of Marine Le Pen getting over 40%, I think, was, was a very powerful result. Uh, of yesterday's election. Tell me a bit more about that. When when we look at, at you know, she, uh, she's done, she did far better than she did the last time around. Uh, what does what the 40% barrier mean uh, in terms of the, in terms of Le Pen's viability as a candidate and the viability of her ideas as a far right leader? Well, I think much like a lot of, when we're analyzing this election, there's a lot of contradictory ways we can make sense of what happened. On the one hand, you can say, okay, the constant progression, you know, it's a third time that she's running after 2012, 2017, and now 2022. Every time her, her number of votes has increased. So she could very much try to spin it as, you know, I'm on the right track. It's a matter of time. Maybe in 2027, it will, it will happen. On the other hand, though, the, the more pessimistic view here is that Marine Le Pen has been able to get some support because she's tried to, uh, you know, water down some of the measures, some of the, the less, the more divisive aspects of her, of her policy. She's tried to look more respectable, but in doing so, she also invites competition on the right. And we saw that happen this time with, with Eric Zemmour and also with her niece, Marion Maréchal. So how far further can she go to be more moderate without losing some of her hardcore, more, more sort of far-right supporters? So it's a delicate dance. She may have also hit a sort of certain peak there, Time will tell, but I don't think it's necessarily an inevitable story of the eventual victory of the Le Pen's. Because there was a lot of analysis, or there was some analysis, at least following this vote, that it in fact, at 40, 41%, that this was in fact a victory of sorts for Marine Le Pen, even though Emmanuel Macron was the decisive winner. Yes, I mean, you could say it, it, in a way that it, it, it's a victory 
I think because she's she's becoming you know closer to you know being cl- it's a more credible score than it was five years ago where she was basically blown out from you know sixty six to thirty four if I recall. So I think the margin reducing I think is probably also for internal reasons might strengthen her own claim that the fourth time might be decisive because had she been blown away again there might be increasing grumblings without our own party that maybe the Le Pen name is simply too toxic in France. And that as much as she's tried to move away from the legacy of her father, it's just not possible. I would hasten, though, that it's quite possible that her results are also inflated by the strong level of apathy. I mean, we've had record abstention in a French context, uh, the lowest turnout in a presidential election since 1969. We're also dealing with so many coming together major crises, whether economic, uh, health crisis and the war, that also maybe that have, might have inflated her results to a degree. Because one of the other things that came up, of course, was that France is still very much divided in this whole presidential vote series, the presidential vote system um, that we've seen over the last uh, three weeks or so really did reflect those divisions. And those aren't going away uh, just because the French voters sort of held their nose and chose Emmanuel Macron again. No, I mean, you're absolutely right, Ben, that we've seen the major divides, the divides that are actually quite common in many other Western or European countries. They're not that dissimilar to what we saw in the aftermath of Brexit, for instance or even to a degree what we saw in the United States after 2016. So these divides are, are, are very strongly anchored. They're not going to go away. In addition, in the French case, there's, there's this ideological political fluidity that we've seen in the last five years with Macron coming to power. He essentially upended completely the traditional political system where you had these two dominant parties and a plethora of smaller parties around. Uh, the Socialist Party is fast moving towards possible oblivion, same for the traditional Gaullist party. Uh, So there's a real sense of uncertainty as to what comes next. There's a real volatility uh, in in the coming weeks, let alone the coming years. Because there is another election coming up, of course. Yes, a very important election coming up uh, in principle in June. It's possible it might happen earlier because the president, in this case Emmanuel Macron, does have uh, the authority to dissolve the parliament and have the election slightly earlier. Uh, Probably not likely, so it will definitely be in June at the latest. Uh, The question is whether he is going to be able to to take advantage of the momentum of having won. We can assume that turnout will be even lower in the parliamentary election, and so will the Macron supporters be mobilised? Secondly, I think the nature of the parliamentary election, which is, again, you have this sort of two-around runoff system, really leads to or is really dependent on being able to draw local alliances uh, in each of the constituencies. So again, the question is who will play this game better, whether Mélenchon is going to be able to reunite part of the left to provide a clear counterweight, will Macron be able to re-energize his supporters, and how well will you know, the, the national rally around Le Pen be able to build bridges with others, which has historically been its weak point. What lessons do you think there were in this election for other countries? I mean, certain allies such as the United States and Canada would watch and see a Macron victory and and certainly breathe a sigh of relief. But what lessons do you think are out there uh, in this whole electoral process we've been watching in France for other countries that are struggling with many of these same issues, whether it be cost of living issues, um, the war, the pandemic, and so forth? 
I don't, it's hard to wonder whether there's any clear lessons. I think there's more rather than lesson. I would say maybe it's, it's a clear wake up call that these problems of various groups not feeling included, um, various constituencies feeling left behind, those have not been meaningfully addressed, I think, in many Western countries. And that if they are continue to be ignored or treated superficially, we are going to get these votes for protest parties, whether the left or the right. So this is not going anywhere unless there's more serious attention uh, paid to this issue. I would say also, uh, you know, we can't kid ourselves in belief and believe that the, the pressures from you know, supply chains, the pressures on inflation are going to be addressed or going to be rapidly solved because the war in Ukraine looks like it's getting, uh, you know, we're looking like we're moving towards a quagmire and a prolonged conflict. So these economic pressures are likely to stay with us. So I think politicians and leaders across, you know, Western countries have to prepare or have to anticipate that those will continue to be a major factor. And, and finally, I, I think also, I know Macron pivoted a little bit during the, between the two rounds, I think an awareness that on the environmental front, his record has not been stellar, stellar enough. I think there's going to have to be a lot more focus on the costs of a major environmental transition and being aware and understanding which groups are going to be more vulnerable. I'm speaking with Garrett Martin, a senior professorial lecturer at the School of International Service of American University and the co-director of the Transatlantic Policy Center. We're discussing Emmanuel Macron's uh, victory in the French presidential elections on Sunday, uh, a victory that was by a, march, a larger margin than some had anticipated earlier, uh, but certainly... Uh, with 41% of the vote for Marine Le Pen, the far-right candidate, and the only other candidate in this runoff, uh, was also sent some messages. When we come back, a bit more about what this means for broader, for geopolitically, um, for the war in Ukraine, because there were certainly people watching this very closely, thinking that a win for Marine Le Pen would certainly be a big victory uh, for Vladimir Putin here. We'll be back with that. I'm back with Garrett Martin, the senior professorial lecturer at the School of International Service of American University and co-director of the Transatlantic Policy Center. Uh, we're discussing Emmanuel Macron's uh, win uh, for his second term now as president of France, a, a fairly convincing win, a fairly easy win, although there had been a lot of trepidation about just how close it might be. It wound up being uh, a fairly convincing win for Emmanuel Macron. Uh, and, and a bad day, one would presume, along with the election in Slovenia that saw a populist leader lose as well, a bad day for Russia, one would think. Yes, I'm sure that Vladimir Putin, I mean, that was very much an issue during the campaign that the, the close proximity between Marine Le Pen and Vladimir Putin or with Russian banks definitely featured quite heavily during the campaign and including during the debate. Keep in mind that had Marine Le Pen won, one part of our program would have led France to withdraw from NATO's integrated military structure. So you can imagine how divisive that would have been had she prevailed. So I think in that respect, I think that was a very helpful outcome for NATO and, and for the West. And also because Macron has certainly been in the last five years, someone who's been very focused on Europe, on a stronger Europe in the field of defense. And that would certainly be, I mean, I, I guess there must have been a contingency plan in place in case Le Pen did win. But with that solved, uh, Macron obviously is also quite been sort of the front person for, for allies in speaking with Vladimir Putin, has he not? Yes, he's certainly tried to, he has certainly tried you know, throughout his, his time in the office, there, there were periodic attempts of at least trying to keep channels open with Russia. I don't think there was necessarily any great illusions about Vladimir Putin or about the nature of his regime. But I think for geostrategic reasons, and also 
especially in the context of the Trump years, I think for Macron, it was, it was important to keep channels of communication open. He was very active in part also because France is holding currently uh, the rotating presidency of the EU. Uh, he was also very active in trying to give diplomacy a chance along with others. Uh, but I, I do think the current events in Ukraine, I think, are only going to give more ammunition and for, for, for Macron's continued arguments that Europe needs to be more strategically autonomous, that it needs to be able to take a greater share, a greater control over its own defense. Not in opposition to the United States or NATO. Macron is very careful not to say that. But I think his, his view that the conflict in, in, in Ukraine is only adding further evidence that Europe has to take a greater share of its defense. With Macron still there, um, how do you see unity in Europe progressing now that we, we get the clear impression that this war in Ukraine is going to drag on? But, you know, it's an excellent question because, you know, with the departure of the scene of Angela Merkel, there was definitely a bit of a leadership void in, in, in the EU and an expectation that Macron would be trying to step up. Uh, we still have a, a relatively new chancellor in Berlin and Olaf Scholz. One element that I will be paying close attention to in, in, in the coming months and years is, is the dynamic between Paris and Berlin, because it's not sufficient, but it's always been a very important motor for, you, for EU policy. In addition, the fact that Germany has made a commitment to double defense spending, how will that affect the balance between Paris and Berlin moving forward? I think that's one element. The other I think which is going to be important is Macron, I think, has tried recently to draw more connections, more ties with other important poles within the EU. We've seen that in his relationship with Mario Draghi in Rome, uh, trying to cultivate a little bit his counterpart, uh, Pedro Sanchez in Madrid. And I think also maybe being a bit more inclusive of the central European powers like Poland. Uh, I think Poland was in the spotlight for some of its democratic backsliding but in the context of a war in Ukraine, I think Poland does take on a renewed importance in, in, within the EU and in terms of, of EU unity. When one looks at, um, not, we don't often follow Slovenian politics, obviously, in Canada, but there was an important election in Slovenia yesterday with another right-wing uh, leader losing. Um, what do you make then of, of sort of this long-standing and often attributed to the Kremlin, this idea of trying to push more right-wing populist leaders in these countries? Um, has, it, has it taken a big step back in the past little while, do you think? Well, I think there's an understandable, I mean, from the standpoint of the Kremlin, I'm sure that they uh, relish this unity, um, you know, amongst EU powers and anything that can, that can help to that cause is, is really often supported. And, and the Kremlin has been quite indiscriminate in terms of who they've tried to support, whether on the left or on the right. I'm not an, sufficient of an expert to really give you a sense of, of what happened, but I do think it speaks to one element when we're talking about populism, when we're talking about populism in Europe, is it, the extent to which populism is similar, but it does come into very different local flavors. And so I think it's important that we, we, we keep that in mind when we, understand, when we look at European e elections and the ebb and flows of populist parties. Back briefly to France, I, I guess what lies ahead now, what are the challenges that Emmanuel Macron is going to face, first and foremost, when it comes to trying to uh, achieve some of what he was set out to do in his second term? It's a really busy agenda. I mean, his inbox is going to be full with major issues. Domestically, I think, of course, dealing with um, cost of living and, and pressures from inflation. I think that was the main issue that animated voters. 
uh, f- focusing on, on measures to try and provide support for, for, for various households. I think there's a cap on, on the price of gas, for instance. Those are ways to try and mitigate the economic pressure on, on households, number one. And number two, I think we mentioned a more sustainable, a more ambitious environmental policy, I think is going to be an important element. Uh, thirdly, of course, the, the impact of the pandemic uh, really showed some gaps and some pressures on, on the health services in France. So I think that's going to be something key. And finally, on the domestic front, and this matters, Macron, if you remember in 2017, really sold himself as someone who really wanted to rejuvenate, revitalize France domestically in order for it to have greater clout on the European level. And there was a number of major reforms that were done um, in the first term, but now difficult reforms like on, on, on the pension system or raising the retirement age are likely to lead to major protests and a real sort of wrestle between, um, arm wrestle between Macron and some of the trade unions and other political actors. So being able to deal with this level of, of anger and tension uh, is, is going to be a big challenge for Macron in the month ahead. And, and of course, his margin of maneuver will depend on how well his party does in the elections in June for the, for the parliament. Yeah, one gets the impression perhaps the victory was the easy part in all this for Emmanuel Macron. Garrett Martin, thank you so much for your time tonight. I appreciate it. Thank you. My pleasure.